Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even in Fontainebleau, every year more and more people come for Easter. It really feels like at some point there will not be enough rock here for everybody to climb over Easter holiday. Like, there will be queues and it's, you know, it's sad for the people who are queuing, but it's also sad for the rock, which gets eroded. It's sad for the forest, which gets, you know, disturbed. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this conversation with Zafia Reich. If you go on their website, you'll see that Zofia has a pretty interesting bio. They're based in the climbing and bouldering paradise of Fontainebleau in northern France and are non-binary, autistic, a climber and an author. It gets better. Zofia has lived in six countries around the world, was born in Warsaw and as well as speaking Polish, Zofia also studied German, Russian, Japanese and Mandarin. Um, this is a proper mixed bag of a conversation in a really fun and brilliant way. There's a time and a place for rip-roaring adventure stories, and in many ways I think they need protecting as we move forwards. In this episode, we cover a vast swathe of topics, from Zafia's backstory and life, feminism, autism, climbing, ethics, a little bit of philosophy, amongst various other topics. I left this chat feeling like I'd learned a lot, I'd had my eyes open, but also needed a cup of tea and a sit-down, which is often a good sign. Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you quickly about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication. They, like us, celebrate incredible stories of adventure and exploration in an incredible quarterly journal, and you can find out more at sidetrack.com. I'd also like to strongly suggest that you seek out the Martin Moran Foundation, our charitable partner. They're an incredible organisation who are working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors, which is something very close to my heart. There's a good chance that if you're listening to this, that you spend time outside or are inspired by the natural world, and you're able to take advantage of whatever it is that brings to you. But we're the lucky ones. If you want to support the Martin Moran Foundation, you can find out more on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please leave us a review on iTunes. You can be honest, as honest as you like. Some people are very honest. (laughs) And um, we really do appreciate the feedback. And in parallel with that, the more reviews we get, the more the algorithms like us and the more people get to hear the podcast. Okay, over to Sophia. Please could you introduce yourself and tell me who you are and what you do and what you, well, what you are, whatever that means to you. Wow, that's a deep question. Um, I'm going to start simply by saying that my name is Zofia Reik and uh, I was born in Warsaw, Poland, where I lived until I was about 20. And 
Then I proceeded to live in five different countries and I ended up in Fontainebleau in France, where I'm at the moment. And I have been here for five years, which is quite incredible because it feels like it's not been even, you know, a few months. Uh, I guess the pandemic had something to do with the time warping and and shortening itself. Um, I am a climber and I am a writer. Um, I know a lot of people sort of have this comfortable option of of introducing themselves through their profession but I don't really have a profession per se so I'm a climber and a writer I write and I climb and I organize a festival um oddly I don't think of myself as a festival organizer it's just something that I do um and yeah I think that's it in the way of a brief intro to Zofia Rake. What was life like growing up in Warsaw? Oh um Oddly quiet, I suppose. It was a city of two million back then. Now it's nearly three million, I think, and it feels so much more busy now. But back in the day, it felt calm and I didn't really know what um, the hustle and bustle of living in a big city was because, yeah, the streets were empty, the parks were quiet. I actually lived where my mum still lives. It's a block of flats, a seven-storey building, which is right next to a road, which has got three lanes each way and two lanes of trams in the middle. And that sounds incredibly hectic, but it really didn't feel like it. It felt chill. And um, yeah, like every every summer we'd go out of the city for two months. So it was nice. I was going to say, I mean, you've just started to answer the question, but did you have access to nature as a child and were you into outdoor sports and recreation and nature? Yeah, very much so. I was lucky enough in that my mum believed that um, children should be taken into like a healthier countryside environment as much as possible. So I actually have memories, like some of my earliest memories are from being in a tiny village. Um, I think it's about 80 kilometers out of Warsaw, which was enough back then. And, you know, there was an outside toilet and a guy would come once a week with a cart and sell vegetables and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, we we, we went um, first to the countryside. And then I guess when I was older enough to to do some sort of sporty activities we we also went skiing and then hiking so yes I was very lucky in that in that way because it's not the norm or it yes well, well it certainly is not the norm today with children just sitting in front of computers but it also wasn't exactly the norm back then because I guess it just depended on the parenting approach and so how- and means obviously yes yes that's an interesting point um yeah we'll come back to that so um, well, how did you end up living in Fontainebleau, where you live now? Um, I first visited Fontainebleau some 10 years ago when I met my partner and he uh, was just going for a trip here and I've never been. So I, I joined him. We were just sort of freshly dating and it was like, oh, yeah, let's swap dating for going away for two weeks together. Um so, um, yeah, I visited Font 10 years ago and I really liked it. And it was kind of this destination for a, like for so many climbers in, in London, I suppose. It's just this destination for a quick trip outside of the UK. And it, we were searching for a place to move. Um, 
after living in Bulgaria for a while, we decided that we wanted to be more sort of central in Europe. And the choice was font just, just because it's, you know, the best climbing place we could think of in Europe. And for those who don't know, what's it like? Can you describe it? Hmm, it's very different to anything else that I, I've seen anywhere else. Um, anything else I've seen anywhere else? Brilliant. Um, so imagine a forest which is surrounding a historical city full of culture and restaurants. And it's a small city, but very, very traditionally French and at the same time very vibrant. And then all around it, there's this quite big forest. And it's not a primordial forest. It's a forest that has been... Um, you know, growing wood for for however many centuries now. Um, and among like this forest, it's this bunch of very cute tiny stone house villages dispersed around this forest. And then everywhere in the forest, in among the trees, there are insane boulders uh, that just pop out out of nowhere, out of flat land. Those those sandstone boulders that really seem that they shouldn't be there, and and yet they are. Um, and so basically, I think the only other place that can match Fontainebleau when it comes to the concentration of bouldering would probably be Rockland, but it's just much less developed there than here, because here it's got like over 100 years of history when it comes to climbing on these rocks. Um, so, yeah, it's quite incredible. And when did you discover climbing and what was it that drew you to it? I discovered climbing when I was hiking. So actually like the very traditional old style way almost. Uh, you know, I was introduced to the mountains through hiking and scrambling. And then I noticed that people did something else. You know, they had means of tackling those sheer walls that I thought were just completely inaccessible. And, you know, also where I where I discovered the mountains that was in Poland, you were not really allowed officially to step off the trail, which was marked through the national um, park. Um, that that um, encapsules the mountains so just to see people who are allowed to walk off the trails and and go climbing on you know rocks which are outside of the trails that was super magical and like mysterious they seemed like some kind of um um like a brotherhood or like a secret organization almost which obviously wasn't true but to to a child's eye that's that's what it seemed like and I just really wanted to be like them and do what they did um, and I guess I took a little bit of a weird detour on the way to become a mountaineer and I ended up a boulderer. So predominantly, it's not that I wouldn't touch other rock climbing types, but I'm not sort of, you know, too eager to pursue anything else apart from bouldering at the moment. And when you introduced yourself, you said you're a writer and a climber. And mm -hmm. I think I don't know. It was notable by the by the which one came first. I mean, what is it you, what is it you write about? Well, you know, I don't necessarily think that to describe yourself as a writer, you need to be somebody who like has a massive output um, in terms of publications and stuff like that. You know, for one, for one, you can be a terrible writer, and I'm not really sure if I'm a good writer or not. But I certainly am one in that I have this need to to put uh, words on paper or increasingly on, on the computer screen although I'm trying to reverse that and go back to paper because apparently there's something else to your brain and you're more creative or whatnot um but I always knew that I wanted to write like I learned to read and write when I was three and I think you know before I was four I had like this little notebook that I was pretending was my first book um and I was trying to create stories and stuff like that so um 
yeah, I always did some sort of uh, writing activity. Some of it was professionally. I did a tiny bit of work as a journalist. Um, and five years ago, maybe maybe more, I got this idea to, to write a book about climbing, like a nonfiction book, and that's come to fruition uh, very recently. And so now I'm going to be a published author, which is quite surreal to think. Um but yeah, that's that's practically the first big thing that I'm like putting out there in terms of in terms of my writing output. So whether that's enough to identify me as a writer or not, I don't know. But I just feel a writer for so many other reasons. Yeah, and we can drift down the rabbit hole with this. But I think if you if you write stuff and you feel like you are a writer, then it's hard to argue that you aren't one. Surely. Mm, um, the question, as I said, whether one is a good writer or a bad one, that's an entirely different question. <laughs> And you can argue that that's subjective. So, you know, it's exactly. difficult. Yes. It's not maths. Um, yeah. So what do you what do you like to write about? Um, well, that actually has changed a lot over the years because I used to just sit down and write for the sheer pleasure of, pleasure of it. And that would be very much fiction and very often fantasy fiction and those wild, wild um, stories of really without any constraints to what what it was but it turned like I don't know if that's because it's just so much more practical or because that's just what I'm better at oddly I'm better at non-fiction and journalism and and I just like writing about things that are somehow important to me it's just that the the profession of non-fiction, of a non-fiction writer or a journalist, it changed so much during my lifetime that I kind of couldn't go in, go on the path that I envisaged, envisaged for myself. So I did, for example, really enjoy writing um, sociological pieces about the Olympics in 2020, 2012. And one of my favourite pieces of research was for um, uh, Filipino migrant workers in London, um, domestic workers, um, and I really like that piece. But basically, there, there, there just always seemed to me that there wasn't enough demand for the kind of writing that I wanted to do. So um, yeah, I kind of just didn't make it my full time thing, and and kept doing things that I liked, which is you know I had a blog for a while, and that was fun. It's just that it just wasn't exactly sustainable. So I I did so many different things over the years and I enjoy, I guess, a wide spectrum of things. But as I say, I'm not sure if the things that I want to produce at the moment, the, there is demand for them, but it's a very small demand. It's a smaller and smaller audience for the kind of writing that I like to do. And what was it that motivated you to, and pushed you over the edge, I guess, to start writing a book? Um. Well, this book or a book, because that's a very different question. <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's a good. Uh, I don't know. You tell me what. <laughs> well, this book actually had a, because it's a nonfiction um, work. It it actually you know had a very clear subject and somewhere more or less clear that I wanted to take it. Um, otherwise, you know, I would just sit and start so many different things, which I never finished perhaps because they were not non-fiction things. So it's not that you feel like you've covered a subject. Um, I guess executive functioning comes here into question because it's so much easier to, to cover something that's concrete and real than, than follow your fantasy and creativity, I suppose. Um, but with this book, I wrote a 
thesis, a master's thesis in 2014 that was on um, how female climbers perceive and consume the representations of themselves in climbing media. And when I was writing that, I thought that, you know, there is there is more in climbing that I would like to cover and perhaps in a less academic style, in a more accessible and, and popular style. And that was the idea for the book. So that was uh, nearly, that was eight, eight, eight years ago when it took the pandemic and the lockdown to make me sit down on my backside and actually make it happen. Amazing. And you did it and you've written a book. Ah, oh, yes, I have. Now I actually am doing the last proofread, which is driving me insane. But it has to go to the printers very shortly. So I really need to get it done. Yeah. Tomorrow morning needs to be finished. So I'd like to talk to you about the thesis. But before we do, um, what is the kind of elevator pitch premise of the book? And well, yeah, just that. The book is a portrait of climbing. Um, bringing together the past and the present of the discipline and trying to show it in a multidimensional way that's more complete than it has been done before, hopefully. And it also tries to bring multiple angles, not only when it comes to timelines, but also geographies and and social stratum and gender and and basically have maybe I would go as far as saying and. Um, intersectional approach to to what climbing is and um, at the same time hopefully it's an interesting story about climbing so yeah so what was it that made you feel like there was a gap for that what has been written before um it seems to me that the, a lot of the stuff that was written before was in some way very uh fragmented and very much just a sliver of what could be said about climbing so of course if you want to be an expert uh in in any discipline or in any um you know any type of climbing or even any type of climbing you know theoretical knowledge about it you have to focus on one thing and it has to be a sliver that's just the case um but i just wanted to create something that would touch on so many more things um not necessarily being like um full-on chronicle because these have also been done and especially on like the most iconic climbing locations in the world or like uh you know gritstone climbing so there were different approaches that were just like focusing on on this one thing and and making a chronicle out of it but instead i wanted to to touch on many things and make it a cohesive and interconnected image that would explain how climbing that we see today came to be because I think um, seeing a discipline that just just becomes so much more popular and suddenly reaches reaches so many more people, it's quite weird that it reaches them in this shape or form that it has taken on today. But they don't know anything else about it, and there is so much else and so much that shaped it to to be what it is. It was supposed to be a, a short. Um, explanation here but I, I didn't manage that sorry no and I'm sorry I'm going to make it longer so can you give me an example of what it is you mean um well for example uh just thinking about like the most basic thing to me that's very interested interesting is that climbing has developed in many places around the world pretty much independently and um in every one of those locations there was a different set of ethics and a different set of um 
sort of lead characters and and climbing was taken slightly differently by its participants and it had a slightly different meaning for the communities you know sometimes it was slightly connected to 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 the politics even sometimes it was very much a class thing um it sort of had many narratives in those different in those different places and it's fairly recent that all of this connected and i'm quite interested in in those meeting points of of different cultures i think the most obvious one is the british and the french climbing culture that that you know i wouldn't i wouldn't want to say clash but met um with full force, I guess, around the eighties, and and it was quite interesting, and and those encounters were the moments that uh, decided sort of which direction climbing would take on afterwards. So I think bringing them up and looking at them in that context, as opposed to like, oh, this person climbed that and that was it, it's more of a this person went somewhere and they were surprised that the ethics were such and they did something else and then a discussion followed. Um. So yeah, I think that kind of thing, and also very much the the present of the discipline um, being uh, well and past as well. Um, any really part of it being affected by things outside of climbing, because people tend to think of climbing as something separate from the rest of the world, and that's not the case. Climbing is very much a part of our society and culture, and it's you know we like to think oh you know climbing is now shaping fashion or whatever but in reality climbing is very much a product of its environment and and not bringing that to the discussion i think it's doing it a disservice and showing it as a as a fragmented and and not very interesting thing really yeah that's interesting god there's so many different avenues to take this down but uh and we might kind of come back to a few things but what do you mean as well? Could you explain your meaning of looking at it from an intersectional perspective? Um, well, that's something that's been discussed in the climbing community now for quite a couple of years, or maybe maybe yeah, more probably. Um, just thinking about how climbing is perceived by different groups, um, be it uh, social groups, class, gender, uh, economy, and and realizing that um, it's got Im- an impact outside of the climbing community as well. So, you know, we tend to think, oh, climbing is, let's say, differently accessible for males and, and females. But we don't tend to think what the fact that we climb does to the environment around us or people around us. And, and I think um, there is a story which I tell in my book of how um, Yosemite climbing came into being and how the um first how how the valley was sort of claimed as a national park and and people very few people i i suppose um realize what impact it had on people who've lived there before you know and it's not something that happened very long time ago it's 170 years that that it's really not a long time ago um and it's incredible that we tell all of these stories from the 50s and 60s of what was going on um, climbing-wise in Yosemite, but we don't tend to talk about what was going on socially at the time. And, and you know, that there are people who are being literally kicked out of their houses a mile from Camp 4. And, and it's just, yeah, it's just not on people's radar. And I find it absolutely bizarre. I totally agree. It's really interesting. And, if, and uh, yeah, and... and you know, other places around the world that become big hotspots for what is essentially climbing tourism as it grows, which it is yeah. rapidly. 
But equally, I think it's, you know, looking back, we're actually doing some research for a potential project at the moment and looking at Lambaris in North Wales. And, you know, that was a a melting pot of world-class climbers in the 80s. And, you know, Margaret Thatcher came into power, closed everything down, and all these guys were living on the dole in, you know, squats, essentially, sharing one car between 15 people. And, I mean, one question, when we were sat down doing the research, one of the first questions that the potential director, one of the first things she said was, what did the Welsh think? Yeah. And we're hoping to find out. But I don't know. I don't know yet. I know lots about Lambaris and North Wales and the climbing scene, but I don't know what the Welsh think. Well, it's it's something, I think it's a story happening basically, in as you said, in every climbing hotspot. It's a story that at the moment is unfolding in Alsa Ferreira, Magic World, right? It's the same situation. There is a there is a super nice uh, climbing family that started this climbing camping hostel um, in years ago. And there is this ongoing friction between villagers and, and climbers. Like, you know, the village thinks they don't need the climbers. The climbers think they are entitled to be there. And like, uh, I myself can't tell where I stand because on one hand, I'm just like, oh my God, these people want, to their, want their village to be quiet. And, and you know, they don't need uh, people camping around their sheep fields. But at the same time, I'm like, these are rocks that I need to access. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's really tricky. And I guess nobody, like, you know, with the Welsh, nobody has ever asked them. I guess uh, if there is a peat of peats eats, he was quite happy. But uh... it's for sale. Really? No. Yeah, it's way. just gone up for sale. I know, I'm very sad. But, oh. um, I, but I think that's true. You know, you can use climbing as a model and look at actually recreation and yeah. how the places that we, you know, whether it's skiing or even just hiking. Um, the way that we use land for recreation and how that impacts the people who live there. Yeah. Um, we often overlook it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there is also something to be said for people who actually start thinking, well, we can benefit somehow from having an influx of tourism. But cause I was thinking here about Rocklands because I know that there are so many people wanting to to capitalise on on how climbing in Rocklands has taken off, like locals. Um, but then the question is, which ones of the locals are the ones that benefit? Because, you know, it's it's not a unif- unified group of, of people. And uh, is it really all of them that are going to benefit? Like what's going on there? I, there there's so much. And, and basically this kind of quest, this kind of questioning, this kind of an approach is something that I'm, trying to to experiment with in the book and also looking at the past just asking questions like why were certain things happening and then what were they doing to, to people around um who are not necessarily even directly directly involved as climbers yeah God, it's very interesting um yeah another quick example is like you know wadi rum in jordan how you know it's just been an indigenous bedouin li- yeah. you know, living in, in, in the desert and now yeah they've all been trained up to guide tourists and use ropes and they seem pretty I've been there a few times I'm going again in May and they seem pretty happy about that but those are the guys who said yes so you you don't really see the guys that are not necessarily happy with it yeah but it's you know it's climbing is I think the good thing about climbing is that in the grand scheme of things, it is the kind of discipline that is a little bit more um, self-critical or maybe self-questioning, even though it's not enough 
self-questioning for sure. But I think one of the good things about those sort of like, uh, I don't want to say, what is the word? Um, Just non-mainstream or outside of mainstream pursuits is that they are more um, aware. But that's also something that I think we, we need to think about when climbing is becoming a more popular discipline it's becoming an olympic sport stuff like that and and then it enters this mainstream that's not really self aware self-aware and and i think we might lose something uh at this time if we don't watch it closely well again you know, we are very very welcome to disagree with me on this if you do but i think it comes down to identity because i'm you know i live and work in the outdoor and adventure sector and i think a lot of the people i know their identity is hugely centered around being a climber or an adventurer or, you know, et cetera. Whereas lots of people who are getting into the sport, they just go climbing on a Tuesday with their mates, but actually it's not a part of their identity. And so they don't have capacity to care as much as, and should they? I see what you mean, but I wouldn't say that necessarily identifying as a climber means that you've got the right set of ethics about you because even living in Fontainebleau you know I know so many locals that would say I don't care something is private land or I don't care something is a is a national uh, reserve that should not be entered by humans or I don't care I'm climbing wet rock because you know this is my prerogative that I climb it so and these are people who have been climbing here for 30 years so uh I'm not sure if we can clearly draw this line between people who are climbers by identity and climbers by a pass for the gym um, and to say that ones are good and ones are bad. Because I think that, you know, especially in communities that are kind of thinking about, for example, ecology, like in in Scandinavia, like Sweden, there are so many new climbers being created every day. And these are climbers that are going to care because they okay, they might encounter climbing for the first time at a gym in, in Stockholm, but it's going to be a gym that will tell them, when you go outdoors, don't leave trash behind. Um, while, you know, it's not that climbers that are real climbers, um, inverted commas, uh, are not going to leave trash on the route or, or at the fo- in the forest under the boulders, you know? Well, and yeah, I mean, just from where I'm sitting, you know, climbing used to be a nature-based pursuit. That was what it was. It was a it was a way to travel through a landscape and connect with a landscape. Whether, in my opinion, wrongly under the banner of conquest, or whether just to experience that place, which is how it should be done, I'd argue. I don't think that's the case anymore. Even for people going sport climbing, sometimes going track climbing, you know, it's not about nature at all or the landscape. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, certainly, especially like people coming to the sport from a sort of um, achievement based perspective. And um, it can happen to anybody. And I guess it's quite unfortunate when it happens. Like I would say definitely it happened to me, like even though, you know, I I came to climbing from from hiking and from this like very much outdoor centered and nature experience centered perspective, I then stepped away from it and and consumed climbing through climbing media just um you know i was aware of it i was once a part of it i stepped away and then i just kept kept looking at it through uh through the lens of of media and then when i came back for it it massively affected how i perceived it and and what i wanted to get out of it and i think it wasn't necessarily good for my experience and 
probably also not good for what I was bringing as a climber to the climbing community. Um, so basically what I'm trying to say is I think that when media is being created, when when professional climbers are putting out um, stuff that they do, when there are businesses based around climbing, I think all of these voices should be aware that they are sort of informing the new generation of climbers in, in how they're going to interact with the sport and the venues where it happens I, I mean outdoor venues and I think there should be a responsibility about um making people sensitive to to the issues that that the outdoor environment um, faces because of climbing or even you know local communities and stuff like that and I don't see that being done I don't see those pro climbers saying at the end of their videos brush your holes after you finish climbing or I have brushed the holes after I finished climbing and I don't see climbing walls talking about um, climbing ethics to people and, and it makes me sad because I think it's a it's a big mistake. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Especially, yeah, I mean, really down the rabbit hole here, but I quite like it. But, you know, if you look at Britain as an example, we've only got so much rock. You know, look at the Peak District, right? There's not a lot of it. And climbing's in the Olympics. User numbers are up. We want to... The, the the company line tends to be let's engage more people with outdoor climbing let's transition them through because that's logical progression but actually you know it's going to sound sound deliberately elitist to play devil's advocate but do we really want everyone to get into traditional climbing because we don't have the space you know i mean that's something that i grapple with myself all the time because i really want to say i don't want all of those people on my rocks um but then again it's absolutely horrible and they should have access, uh, and I think the question, like, I think it's more important to think about making sure that the existing climbing communities are more sensibly minded to, and also, you know, trying to find long term solutions. Like even in Fontainebleau, every year more and more people come for Easter. It really feels like at some point there will not be enough rock here for everybody to climb over Easter holiday, like. There will be queues and it's, you know, it's sad for the people who are queuing, but it's also sad for the rock, which gets eroded. It's sad for the forest, which gets, you know, disturbed. And I think we need to think about things like buying a pass to an area. Like, you know, there are many people. If we want to consume resources sustainably, we need to limit consumption. And that means limiting access in a fair way. Oh, I was going to say I'm going to be deliberately difficult. So, but buying a pass is surely um, economic unfairness. Well, yes, surely it is. But then you you have to ask yourself: Is access to the outdoors without buying a pass economically fair? Um, I mean, 
just like if we want, it's kind of thinks, feels like if we want to fix climbing, we have to fix the whole society and political and economical systems in the first place. And that would be difficult. So maybe let's think on a smaller scale. Um, but um, you, you, I'm not even saying necessarily buying a pass in terms of a monetary exchange, but getting a pass in a, in some sort of a, a ballot, you know, making sure that, and and you know, Coming back to the example of Fontainebleau, it's never going to happen here because everybody who who uses Fontainebleau for whatever recreation they 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 do here, and it's walking, horse riding, hunting, all sorts. These people think again, it's their prerogative to have access, so it is not going to happen. But then we need to think about it. We need to talk about then, and hopefully, some solutions will become apparent because we will need those solutions very shortly. Yeah, we're going to we're going to experience the same thing. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I'm not much of a climber. I surf or ski yeah. and et cetera, as much as I climb. Um, but, you know, in the surfing world, obviously there's only so many waves breaking at a time. And that's why you get the whole locals only argument happening all the time. I think we're mm. going to have the same thing with rock climbing. And... But you know what? I was in Biarritz just two or two months ago and I don't know which beach is which, but basically one of the most famous beaches around. And I think there were 10 people on the two kilometers or three kilometers stretch of it because the weather wasn't right. So I kind of have, well, it wasn't right in the sense that it was cold, windy and the waves were really big. So my hope kind of is that people will end up being too soft for it. (laughs) And they will, you know, they will just go for an Easter holiday and get out on the rocks if it's sunny. But the rest of the time, they will stay at their gym. It sounds horrible, but that that might be our only hope. (laughs) Winter bouldering will be, it's it's like cold water surfing, you know, that's always going to be room. Um, It's an acquired taste. You'd really hope. Yeah, I mean, just a quick point to make. I We do this thing, um, we donate 1% of our turnover to... Um, we 1% for the planet members and we give all of ours to a local initiative that protect the moorland around where we are and it almost feels like a voluntary tax like a user tax I mean we we use this place we climb here we run here we mountain bike here and as a result we voluntarily pay our dues and I don't know I suppose I'm just saying this because it's a little bit of a rallying cry I just think I'd like to live in a world where we all voluntarily tax ourselves for using well, these spaces because, so. yeah. And it doesn't need to be, again, just in in form of, of of actual monetary donation, which obviously is a great thing to do as well. But again, coming back, you know, I just come back to Fontainebleau time and time again because I'm here. There is so many things that somebody can do wanting to give back to the forest, things that if we did more often that would actually make a big difference. Like um, with the festival I organize here, we do a day of anti-erosion work in the forest. And it's something that should be done so much more, but the National Forestry Office does not have the resources because basically you need people to carry over rocks and stones because these are the only materials allowed to be used in in the area because, you know, it's a protected area. So if every climber who comes here for two weeks of holiday spent one day working for initiatives like that, which which don't even regularly happen because there isn't enough people who would like to do it because they just want to come here and send all the blocks they they want to send um, with zero respect for the rock being wet and, and not climbable. That drives me insane, actually. Um, 
that's this part when I go on a rant on, on how much I hate people who climb wet rock and you'll have to cut it out because I'll say horrible things. Um, but I see it here all the time and I see it from complete newbies to to, to local climbers uh, through World Cup climbers who are, you know, able of to, to climb 8A, 8B within their first climbing trip. But actually they are newbies when it comes to outdoor climbing. They have zero, like understanding of of ethics of outdoor ethics so that's also something very problematic because you get those super um athletic individuals who sort of derive their sense of uh, importance in the community from the v number they they are capable of but they really need to be told like wipe your damn shoes before you get on the rock (laughs) like yeah it's quite special. Like I saw an entire national team on a on a wet Fontainebleau rock with including the coach. And I was like, are you kidding me? So do you think climbing should be in the Olympics? Well, the question is, should we organize the Olympics in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> Go on. I absolutely buy into the Olympic sort of um I don't want to say mythology, but in the to the Olympic ethos, even if it's complete bullshit, it still, you know, it gives me goosebumps and and it makes me feel all the feels that I'm supposed to to have. Um, but it's a massive economic failure, massive cost, uh, envi- massive environmental cost. It's a liability in terms for of of people who live at the locations where the Olympic villages are being raised and and really it's a very hateful enterprise if you think about it so <laughs> no climbing should not be a part of the Olympics from that perspective but from the perspective of is it a great spectacle and are we enjoying watching it yes um so tricky loaded and I guess I don't have the answer um I can just wish that we lived in a world without the Olympics um, but since we don't, I don't know. I mean, ultimately, if I have to defer to one answer, I'd say no, I wouldn't want the climbing to be a part of the Olympics. Yeah, okay. And that, um, do you think that climbing is heading in a direction that you're happy with generally? Well, then again, what does my opinion matter? <laughs> you know, my climbing is heading in the direction that I'm happy with. Um, what the rest of the climbing is doing, I... I... <laughs> I guess it was. I guess I ho- I would like it to do less in terms of growing because it would keep it more quiet. But that is an elitist uh, view on things, and um, it was certainly going in the right direction for me when it was becoming so much more um, critical in terms of its inclusivity. And then a lot of people were getting very hopeful because they were saying, as it becomes more popular, as it joins the mainstream, it will become even more inclusive. But I don't think that's the case. I think actually, if the discipline was a sort of niche thing, it would have much greater potential within itself for creating um, a diverse and welcoming environment. Um now that it's growing, that possibility is lesser, but at the same time, maybe this lesser poss- opportunity will still reach more people. So um, swings and roundabouts, I suppose. Yeah, it's so complicated. But it, <laughs> I mean, just I'm not going to go down this route too far, but you just look at access to national parks in the UK and how actually the railway links from inside cities are dreadful. And 
I think I'm going to get the stat wrong and people are going to call me out, but you're welcome to. I think it's around 50% of um, truly working class families don't own a car. So access to national parks is absolutely, you know, classist, if, as, yeah. for want of a better phrase. Yeah. And it's the I same mean, with things like rock climbing. Just also look at the ethnicity. Like everybody's white. Uh, when yeah, when I moved uh, to Fontainebleau, not only everybody was white, everybody seemed to be a bloke, and that's yeah, like of course. five years ago, yeah. <laughs> and now it's starting to change. Um, but you know, you don't have your social background written on your forehead. But I think it is very fair to assume that most of these people also come from very stable middle class families. I think you're right, and I think I um, did this. Awesome podcast, as in she was awesome, not me, um, <laughs> with a young lady called Alishba. And... Oh, yeah, I listened to parts of that. It was great. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, she yeah, she said, um, and I had never thought this through before, that actually it's cultural for her. You know, he, she's got her people, you know, her parents, her friends, her cousins, etc. Like, why do you want to go outside? You know, because I got involved in a bit of an Instagram argument with somebody the other day who... It was that classic kind of all lives matter thing of like, well, anyone can go outdoors. It's not, you can't be ready. It's not possible for the outdoors to be inaccessible for black people. It's like, no, 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 it, it is. Trust me. Cause I used to think that too, but yeah. it really is. Um, yeah, very much so. And if you like the villages where I live, they are all predominantly white and you think, oh my God, everybody's white in this area. But then you go to a city where obviously there is more readily available work and you don't need to travel for it. And the nearest city of Moulin is uh, very much ethnically diverse and not white. And you don't see those people in the forest. And it's not that they don't want to go. I mean, maybe a lot of them don't want to go for whatever reason, but I assume that a lot of them don't have the time to go because they're working because they don't have generational wealth and um i mean this issue is also i think it should be discussed again in a more nuanced way than it's often discussed today because um especially in the uk i think the discussion is only i mean it's very good that it is in the first place um centered around race but then it ends there and it doesn't for example think about people who are economical migrants and they might at, the, at first glance, look exactly like your middle-class British person. But for God's sake, I come from a post-communist country. Nobody thinks about that. <laughs> and I might come from, I, you know, personally, okay, I come from a privileged situation in Poland. But if you go get people who go to, to work as, um, you, you know, washing the dishes in, in London, they are not going to have access to the outdoors. I was in that situation myself when I first moved. Maybe um, it was a bit of a choice on my part, but I was certainly involved in that grind that never stopped. And and I was struggling to buy my tube pass, not to not to think about organizing weekend adventures. But yeah, nobody really thinks about those things. And I guess no, and it actually it, it makes me grumpy sometimes. Is that we we talk about. Uh, obviously we should as you say we should talk about race and gender and all of these things but we never seem to talk about class i mean we're not really sort of yeah. allowed to say, phrase it like that anymore but economic privilege and well, yeah. i get really grumpy about it because i know lots of people in my industry who come from extremely well-to-do backgrounds yeah and yeah not all of us do <laughs> and obviously also like i think these days there is this um sort of tendency to be very um like picking unpicking what people say and finding flaws in it and somebody will immediately say oh but when you talk about economy there is an intersection of 
economic privilege and race. And like when I say that we should look at access to outdoors from the point of economic privilege, it's not that I'm denying that this economic privilege is very much tied to race. But then again, not always it is. That's the nature of intersectionality. Like there are so many angles and bringing one up doesn't invalidate another and doesn't mean we won't talk about it later. But everything is so polarized these days, just I think because of the format of the discussions that we engage in most through the internet. And it it makes them more shallow and it gives them less opportunity for moving things in a positive direction, I think. I completely agree. And that's why, you know, we'd never met, we'd never spoken. Other people arranged this podcast and... You know, that's why I gave the speech at the start. It's like I said to you, you know, say it here for other people to hear it. Um, I'm happy to be disagreed with on anything. Let's talk it all through as long as it's kind. Yeah. And that's partly because I'm a human and I have feelings. And it's partly because I just can't be bothered if it's not going to be. I just get <laughs> bored. You know, when somebody just wants to get on their soapbox and shout at me, I just think I'm not going to gain anything here and neither are they. You know, healthy conversation I believe, requires both people to be open to realising they were wrong. And, you know, and and even if you go in thinking, well, I'm definitely right about this one, it's just a level of, like, I'm trying to educate this person, I'm not trying to wound them. And I think that, that happens so much. But I think that in general, we have kind of forgotten, and I'm certainly guilty of that very often myself, that a discussion is a situation whereby two or more people come with different perspectives and they explain these perspectives to one another and they might well change their own opinion in the process. Well, these days it just seems to be, I think this, you think that, I'm going to tell you what I think, you're going to tell me what you think and then we're going to go our separate ways having achieved nothing. <laughs> but I very much feel like this is how we talk these days. Yeah, um, it is. And, you know, and... Again, to keep it relevant, you know, I think that what we, of course, there are lots of people who need to just use the outdoors and use adventure and climbing and all of these things as an escape from their everyday lives. And that is extremely valid. And I, you know, fully, fully, fully condone that. And people should do that. But equally, living a life that's in tune with the natural world and outdoor recreation, I think we, we need to realize that it's not all quite as rosy as we maybe think it is. And there are some hard conversations to be had. And actually, you know, if if certain groups start getting grumpy with other groups and certain groups get defensive, we're, we're screwed from the word go. Um, mm-hmm. um, I mean, also, there is this thing that, again, I think we need to acknowledge and give it some credit. People who say make like climbing should be only about climbing and it shouldn't be political. And like, I think that's bullshit i think it should be but the fact that climbing is political and the fact that we are talking about social issues the fact that we're talking about environmental issues about access about all those things it doesn't mean that at the end of the day we're not going to go climbing and just climb like to me it just the reaction of make climbing just about climbing it's almost like make america great again or whatever um is as if they felt that now we're only going to discuss those like pain points and, and and problems and only think about how can we make climbing more inclusive. And obviously that would be a very noble pursuit if we only did that. But at the end of the day, we are going to go climbing and I'm going to go climb a boulder and I'm not going to think about, oh, is it because of my privilege that I'm on this boulder and I'm just going to be on my boulder and I'm going to have all the experiences that you have when you're trying hard or when you're 
enjoying the outdoors or where you're pushing yourself, whatever the core of the activity is, that doesn't invalidate being open to more um, broad discussion about what we do. And that more broad discussion does not make it illegal to just go climbing and even, God forbid, have a beer in the forest and and just have fun. No, but I think it also, yeah, it comes down to what we want to achieve as well, right? Like what I do understand, you know, I get quite a few messages from people and it's actually particularly men who say I need, because I talked about changing this podcast into something else not that long ago. And I had a few messages saying, no, 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 please don't. I really need this as my escape. And what I understand is like hypothetically, you know, you've got a 30 year old man who's single bit lonely works in a call center and on saturday he goes bouldering in the peak district like i don't need him to worry about whether or not climbing's racist i think like go climbing mate like good for you you've got this but the rest of us you know we do need to be thinking a bit more widely and broadly around what's wrong with all of this and how can we make it better because i think the this is full soapbox but the greatest threat to absolutely everything right now in the west is apathy most of us are really comfy and we're really content and we just don't really care as much as we like to pretend we do. And Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wonder to what degree, like, you know, us having those conversations that, you know, the kind of conversations we're having at the moment will actually have any impact on the climbing community as it is being created at the moment. Because it is being hugely transformed uh, just because of the sheer numbers of people coming in. And actually, I think that our voices will not be the dominant voices we know we might think like oh we're the ones like saying what climbing should be like and like that we're gonna make it all like reflect like having you know a moment of reflection about itself and stuff like that and i i think it's really we're we're gonna be drowned out by just a gym a gym pass um company profit and and the big uh entertaining show of the olympics and stuff like that so it's very nice that we're doing it, but at the end of the day, I think it's going to be a very limited and niche affair very shortly. Like, you know, climbing, our climbing is, or our outdoors, because um, I guess, as you say, you're not um, like that much of a climber, more of a general outdoors adventure person. I think the core community is going to become very much the same and small and per- perhaps maybe very grumpy as well. And the rest is just going to take off and be something completely different and we'll have zero control over it. And it's quite quite an intriguing thought. Yeah, but maybe that, you know, I don't know that I need... I mean, people who go climbing at climbing walls, that's brilliant. For me, it's no different to going to play basketball or going to an indoor swimming pool. You know, it's it's a it's a training thing. It's social. It's problem-solving. It's But it's not adventure. Yeah. And that's fine. But... Yeah. But I I worry I wonder if it's going to make the if it's going to absorb and make the other sort of more traditional type of climbing disappear. Like, is it just going to get absorbed by the, or maybe it will just exist but without having a, a loud media representation? I think it. I mean, I think it's like music. I think you know things will progress and things will be changed. And and pop, you know, is obviously popular and. But there are people listening to classical music and, you know, punk's not dead. And I think the th- one thing I always come back to is there are more unclimbed mountains in the world than climbed mountains. And we're still chipping away. What I'm most concerned with is the attitude we take when we climb them. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. I have to be slightly careful because I get full soapbox. I don't say it very often, but I think adventure is going to save the world. You know, there's the cheesy Attenborough quote, right? David Attenborough quote that is something like, um, we'll never protect what we don't love and we'll never love what we haven't experienced. And what adventure gives us is experience of the natural world, which in turn turns us into environmentalists. So I think that, you know, ethics can be boring, but they're important because they teach us to respect the places that we spend our time. But as you, you know, as we said before, like there are so many different motivations and attitudes that you can have while being outdoors. And I don't think it's unfortunately necessarily as simple as getting somebody out in the Peak District and suddenly they will, they will want to protect it or um, because it's very possible to be in those outdoor spaces and just still make it very much more about one's own experience of, of their own progress or their own sort of like phenomenological being in their own body. Um, I guess it's the the classic sort of aesthetic versus heroic climbing tradition discussion. There are just some people who are going to be very much focused on themselves. And when they are focused on themselves, regardless of where they are, like we're not going to be able to make them have this adventure. I don't even know if, if what I do is having an adventure. I go and climb a small rock, but I guess adventure is an attitude less more than an actual thing that you do absolutely categorically and i think but the the connection to nature that you clearly feel is profound and significant and i think the pursuit of you know i would say it's adventurous what you're doing you're going into a natural space you're taking things that you need to keep you warm and safe and cozy and well fed and you're competing against yourself there's an element of challenge and uncertainty that's adventurous Yes, I guess it it is very personal, whatever one's threshold for what is adventurous is, because I know so many people who think that going with a bloody big mattress that you put under a rock and then you climb this small rock uh, and if you fall off, you fall off into a foam pit almost. They they find that pitiful, not adventurous, but that's they're right and I might disagree. Oh, it's so relative. I mean, having <laughs> got a little kid now, you know, we have adventures every day that involve walking down the corridor oh, because sure, it's all yeah. new. Yeah. In lockdown, I used to walk out. I walked through this river, thin little stream. It was, to call it a river is exaggerating. You know, it was probably two inches deep. And I just spent hours walking up this river, pushing all the branches out of the way, just looking for bits of old pottery. Nice. That, that was adventure. For in sure, its own yeah. way. Anyway, God, we're wildly off track. It's great fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> so before we wrap up, please, can you tell me about your thesis? Oh, gosh, that was a while ago. Um, So I went to do my master's in anthropology of media, thinking I would write about the media coverage of the tsunami in Japan. And then less than halfway through the course, I realized that I really just want to write about climbing and the representation of women in climbing media. Um, And and I was lucky enough that my supervisor agreed. And it was, I mean, you know, it was a master's level research, so it wasn't anything too groundbreaking, let's face it. Um, But at the time, it was 2014, and it was very much one of the first things that were done in this this area. And um, it just felt important to, to get some people 
to be able to say how they feel about what the media is that they consume is doing and what it does to them to see those representations and also talk to people who who were disrupting the mediascape at that time and being the first um, female and and I actually didn't talk about other genders um then was very much binary based um but yeah, just bringing greater gender diversity to the to the other side of the lens in, in climbing media production. Um, so that was that was a good adventure in a sense because uh, <laughs> I did not know where it would take me, and the the outcomes were um, they were hopeful. And I think what I wrote about in my thesis, it to a degree very much happened uh, later on with climbing media. And at the same time, what I wrote in my thesis about is also hugely dated because, I, as I say, I was coming from this very binary perspective of just uh, boys and girls. And um, I think it was very limited in that respect. So I was going to ask you what the conclusions were, but as you say, it's now dated and limited. So what you, you've said to me, why does my opinion matter? Let's assume it does and let's assume I'm interested. What do you think the conclusions would be now if you were to do it again? Well, I think I would have to ask different questions. So I can't sort of extrapolate on what the conclusions would be without having asked different questions in the first place. And I think to a degree, asking the right questions is the important part. So what I was doing back then was very much focused on um, notions of femininity and how they're being enacted and created. And I think it was a little bit, and it was all about the the possibility of the creation and and experience of alternative femininities within the outdoor uh, sports um, communities. And I think um, it should have been more questioning in terms of the creation of those femininities and identities in the first place. Why do we do it? And how that is repeated in the outdoor media, not on the outdoor mediascape, but, you know, first in the outdoor sports uh, realm and then that in outdoor mediascape um, and why is that done and to what extent we can actually step away from it altogether as opposed to uh, repeating it or just changing it and so I have one more question after this and then I mm-hmm. promise I'll start to wrap it up but so how do you feel about the way that basically people who aren't white men um, are represented in climbing and outdoor media I mean, I think it's went, it's gone a very long way and it's gotten much better. Basically, the question is, firstly, whether they are represented at all. And yes, they are. And then we're going on to those other issues, like what is tokenism? What is fair representation? And um, also um, just sometimes... Uh, So going back to something I said earlier, I think that if climbing remained this niche activity, it had a potential for going in a direction of something that would actually be very inclusive, very diverse and very um, special in that sense, I suppose, very much derived from the uh, divorced from the from the mainstream community. Um, But as climbing entered the mainstream and as climbing coverage started appearing in national papers i think this is what's going to dictate the tone and this will basically bring climbing to the baseline level of everything else in the mainstream society and it won't be any different 
because I think uh, those mainstream representations are going to very much inform how the um, less mainstream representations are going to be done. And of course, there's they're they're going to be there's going to be like this pocket of of sort of niche um, production, but it will be so so niche that um, I think we have to start talking about climbing in terms of you know sports. What is the sports like sports media representation of 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 diversity and stuff? Because it will be absolutely the same. Yeah, but I think climbing has an opportunity to lead the charge, perhaps because, rightly or wrongly, um, you know, with the way that people look at football and men's versus women's football, you know, there's such a disparity in the skill level. Whereas climbing, I think one of the most special things about it is the women are as good as the men they're climbing the same grades they're you know climbing at the same level it's the whole first female ascent thing is a conversation some some women find huge power in it some don't um that's personal but i think it's quite a special thing that we don't have this big gap in skill level i mean i think it's the case in any um niche sport that developed outside of the mainstream culture and that developed outside of the framework that that basically tied modern sports to modernity and and as modern sports such as football create were created they were created for males by males while outdoor sports because outdoors is the arena and the rules are so much less contrived they are not designed at bringing out the disparity between males and females, be it constructed one or not. So that's why those sports are so much more egalitarian. Like, you know, they were not designed to to breed masculinity or to be a proving ground for masculinity. Um, initially, they might have been very much dominated by masculinity, but it wasn't their defining feature, I wouldn't say. That's and, and really interesting. Yeah, mainstream sports. That is the case. So yes, like as you say, like the fact that Yania Garnett is so strong really opens people's eyes to how much the disparity between genders is is a construct. But at the same time, I think when it comes to representation, as soon as we we have um, climbing athletes taking part in in advertising, they're going to do it in the same way that advertising has used gender roles for decades and decades and and they will just be a part of it and we'll lose something there but at the same time perhaps we will be able to to bring something to the table and maybe it will not be muffled out and drowned out in in the noise of everything else that's that's a hope i have yeah cool i have about 20 more questions but i'm going to leave you alone um so extremely vague when i talk i think you're vague yeah, like I don't give concrete examples. I think like so many people who listen to me, they're going to be like, what the hell is, there, is she on about? No, I don't think that's the case. I think, you know, I don't, well, I I understand what you're talking about and I'm a bit of a simpleton. So, you know, we're good. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, oh, no, I am going to ask you. Um, it's a bit personal, but I mean, it's on the front of your Instagram profile and I'm really intrigued. So and I'm willing to be honest about my bias and my prejudice here. Mm-hmm. So I have a view of what autism is. Okay. That is made, well, is categorically, I would, I'm going to guess, untrue. You know, and it says on the front of your Instagram page that you are autistic. Yes. And now I'm, you're welcome to get very cross with me or tell me how stupid I am. 
I would never ever have guessed that you were autistic. You're just uninformed. That's a very good thing. I am uninformed. Yeah, yeah. So how does that, well, could you tell me about it and how that influences your life? Basically, how that influence how it influences my life <laughs> well um i've never had a regular job that's one way it influences my life another way it influences my life i had a family visit last week and i spent the whole night rocking back and forth after they left there are many many ways oh, i pick up languages fairly quickly i spoke six at some point um there are many things that you know so good, good and bad things but what autism is is not what it is represented at. You know, it's not this non-verbal boy sitting in a corner in a corner of a room not making eye contact. Um, incidentally, I hate making eye contact. Um, but it's a spectrum. And basically on that spectrum, you can mix and match the um, characteristics however you want. And uh, some autistic people are going to be incredibly verbal. Uh, you know, I started speaking when I was 11 months and I was reading and writing fluently by the time I was three. Um, other people are never going to utter a word. Um, so it's just a very wide spectrum. And especially in people socialized as female, it's something that goes massively unnoticed because we are trained to hide um, not only autistic traits, but also traits of how we were born, because that's what the society does to people who are socialized as female. Uh, so we mask, and and that's why you get so many people diagnosed in their thirties when they basically start searching for what the hell is wrong with me, and and they start going from a specialist to specialist. You know, at first I had the weirdest things suggested to me and pushed onto me, such as uh, borderline disorder and and depression. And I mean, depression occurs very often in autistic people, but I was certainly never seriously depressed. But that's just what people were telling me, or just because it's such an also understudied subject. There are so few specialists who know what to do with it. You know, you go to a psychiatrist uh, as an as an adult person socialized as a female, and it's going to take five that won't know what's going on, and the sixth one that will say, actually, this is autism spectrum disorder. And then everything falls into place. Well, as soon, you just feel it. Like It's like getting to know something about yourself that, suddenly makes your whole life make sense yeah no and I'm, I'm asking you this next one i guess i'm just willing to be more brave and willing to be wrong or willing to be told like you say uninformed right but people consider autism a learning disability like mm-hmm. we've just had the follow the conversation we've just had you know there's some there's some fairly deep high end you know thoughts gone into that and you've taught me a lot do you consider autism a learning disability i mean learning disabilities are on the autism spectrum. You may or may not have them as an autistic person. And there are also things around learning that I struggle with, just because I struggle with executive functioning or with um, changing between tasks. So if I have, you know, if if I have to learn Japanese in three years, I will do it. But if I have to... Um, do some arithmetics and then answer some questions for my history class, you know, examples just from school, I will not be able to do either because I will just sit there looking at both, being unable to start either. But then, yeah, well, that no, that's really interesting and informative. But I mean, <laughs> there's no label on what I'm about to talk about. But 
I can do 50 different tasks in one hour, but I can't do one long task ever. I can't do them. I have to like, you know, well, I still struggle a lot now. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are different and uh, some things may be traits and then those traits, if they're taken to an extreme, they will be a disorder. Um, but, you know, you might uh, be a person who cannot uh, continue on a long-term task and that might just be a regular, not very disruptive trait of your character. But you also might be a person who cannot see through a 15-minute, I don't know, interview. Um, so it's just an economy of scale. Mm. Like, if something disrupts your life, if something... Well, you know, then some people are talented in one way or less talented in another. And that's why, like, in general, talking about disorders and disabilities, it's it's very hard to draw a line between what is a trait and what is a problem. And then, um, then you know, some people talk about autism as the superpower or neurodivergence in, in general. And that's, again, really stupid because, like, if you've got traits from the spectrum, it's not that you only get the positive ones. So you might see me sort of capitalizing on the positive ones, but you don't see the price I pay for it because I do it in private when nobody sees me. Most of the time I try and sometimes I fail and then it's somewhat embarrassing. Um, and then people are asking, what the hell is wrong with them? Like, are they mentally disturbed? Yes, I am mentally disturbed. <laughs> you know, it's um, it's very fluid and it's very multidimensional like everything else. Yeah. No, thanks very much for that. I think it's, you know, that comes back to that kind of visibility matters thing. And I, I have two friends who've just found out their daughter, who is probably eight, is autistic. And you kind of hear that and you go, oh, oh, I'm so, you know, you kind of think, oh, you know, that must be so. But actually, it's kind of recalibrating your brain, isn't it, to say, oh, right. As you, I mean, that is amazing what you just said. You know, is it a trait or is it a problem? Like that. Also, like people, like with everything else, people tend to have very strong opinions. People who are not necessarily entitled to that opinion, because uh, I think you are entitled to an opinion in in matters that you have any experience with. And I guess the person I want to speak about does have experience. So basically, when I there was a time when I was very active on social media, and at that time, incidentally, I said publicly that I was autistic. And one of the first reactions I get was from a guy who actually worked in an in a charity um, that's autism oriented, and he sent me and I think my partner as well this very long message saying how I'm just like completely messed up and saying such a thing because I cannot possibly be autistic, and I'm like, dude, like, <laughs> okay, you don't even know that like I just came back from a medical professional and like went through this whole path of doing this and that to come to this conclusion I just didn't like throw it out there because I had this great idea one morning but even if I did if I'm saying something like what is your right to to deny me my experience it's like ah like actually somebody got upset and that, as I say it's a person who who I don't know if he still works but worked surrounded I guess surrounded by people who think about autism but are not actually autistic um and and he was just telling me off and I'm like how dare you really yeah um 
and and yeah like um there are people who are going to require like one of you know things in the on the spectrum is requiring assistance the question of how much assistance you require in your daily life um i require very little that is not to say none um and also that you know a question is what is little like question a question of quality of life what would be the quality of my life if the state was able for example to recognize my needs better i live in france where by any sort of official um recognition of a status of a neurodivergent person is incredibly hard to come by and i don't even know if i could do that in french because it's very hard to speak about yourself reliably about your identity about who you are and what you struggle with in a language that's new to you um but you know there, there are there are situations uh countries where where people get good support like against Scandinavia and then it turns out that you know perhaps I could be in full-time employment but I never could because I never a full-time employment environment was created in a way that I I could sustain a full-time well I, I was in full-time employment but I mostly didn't go to the office so um <laughs> yeah it's interesting it just opens it all up, you know, there's more to explore and you find it's like the classic cliche, you know, the older you get, the more you realise you don't know. Yeah. But yeah, no, thanks for talking me through it. Um, So we're at one hour, 13 minutes on my clock, which is long, which is great. Mm. But um, I always ask two people, uh, ask two people, I always ask people the same two questions at the end of every oh, podcast. Wow. Okay. Interpret them however you wish. Um, What scares you? Lack of choice and too much choice. <laughs> I wish to have just the right amount of choice. Not enough, and that's curbing my freedom. Too much, and I get inertia. Is that a good answer? It's <laughs> a great answer. You were it's, after? <laughs> it's unique, which is what I'm generally hunting for, because one day I'm going to put them all next to each other, I'm sure of it. Oh, um, that's going to be good. Um, what brings you hope? Um, the fact that the earth will be very much all right without humankind on its surface. <laughs> yeah. Was it dark? <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're here for now, but I, I, I get the point. I completely understand what you mean. Um, Ace, that was great. I love the deep ones. I definitely Thank need you. a cup of tea now. Thanks for listening. For more information, you can follow along on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast or head to theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft, produced by Orla O'Murray, and if you want to get in touch, you can do so at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. 